0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host,
1: Serena
0: Bird.
1: This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter, or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. Yuma Friglisters and welcome. Today I have a very special guest and in fact all of my guests are special but before I introduce her I have a favour to ask and that is if you love this podcast as much as I do recording please like, follow, comment and above all tell your best friends so that they can enjoy the experience as well. For those on the path to financial independence Retiring in your 40s is often considered to be an ambitious goal. And in fact, for me, it was quite an ambitious goal. For extreme people on the financial independence retire early path, the goal is often the age of 30, while some people have managed to retire in their 20s. But my guest today achieved financial independence before she even graduated from high school. And rather than then sit on a couch or go on a schoolies for life bender, she has used her financial basics and her nows to go on and do some amazing things to help the planet. So my guest today is Ailea Buffier. Ailea is the founder of Evaluate Sustainability, an envirotech company with the mission of making it easy for all organisations to measure and reduce their carbon footprint. Ailea is a Climate Active Registered Consultant and has been involved in the carbon accounting industry since 2005. She is also the owner of 9to5 Interiors, which is a dealer for Steelcase, the world's largest commercial furniture manufacturer. And if you're hearing a theme here about sustainability, you would be correct. Ailea is a Fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and serves on several not-for-profit and government boards. She's also a mentor for Mentor Walks and the Millhouse Ventures, which helps new Canberra businesses whose purpose is to make a positive environmental and social impact. And if that wasn't enough, she's recently won, or her company has, the Australian Enterprise Award for Best Carbon Accounting Solution 2022. Welcome, Ailea. Thanks, Serena. Well, I don't know where
2: we start. There's just so many amazing things. So maybe let's just start at
1: the beginning, high school.
2: Yes, yes. I um, I bought a couple of properties when I was 17. Well, I technically settled when I was 18, so I didn't need my parents to co-sign for me. But just, yeah, working in a part-time job and used the new 1st home buyer's grant that came on and used that to purchase two properties and lived and renovated in one and rented out the other one. Wow. And
1: so you're at high school at the time, you're at high school here in Canberra where we're recording?
2: Yeah. Yep. I was at Dixon College and my then boyfriend, now husband, helped paint and I was tiling after school. And then my dad helped install a new kitchen and we yeah, renovated it. And, and then that went on to quadruple in value over a couple of years. So it, was, it allowed me to then buy two more properties, which also increased very nicely. Uh, Very nicely indeed. (laughs) Yeah. Did you like renovating? Did you have fun? I I did at the time and I've done a little bit more since, but it's not something that I particularly want to spend too much time doing. I look back now at the bathroom that I tiled and it's not very smooth and (laughs)
1: pretty. The more you look at tiles, the more you see the ones that are crooked. Yeah. (laughs) And what were your friends doing at high school? Presumably not everyone was buying and renovating properties or were they?
2: No, but me and my best friend and my parents all sort of got into it around the same sort of time. So we were going to seminars and information sessions and it was sort of, there was, was, had come out of kind of a property lull and then it was booming at the time. So it was a really good time to to get into property. Yeah, one of the the property seminars I went to with my parents, uh, there was, you know, a hundred or so people in the room and they, they said, you know, everyone put up your hand if you've got an investment property and I sort of put my hand up and, lots of other people did and then it was like and put you put keep your hand up if you've refinanced it in the last twelve months and then renovated it and improved the value and then refinanced to, to leverage to buy new more properties and by the end of that I was the only one left with my hand up as an eighteen year old in a room full of adults. So Yeah, that was an interesting moment. an uh,
1: interesting moment <laughs> indeed. And I guess, you know, people would have been surprised you had your hand up in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so what was the process like as a young adult? Like, you know, 17, you're looking at properties, you're not yet legally able to drink or to do a number of things really in Australia, but you, yet you can buy property.
2: Yeah, yep. Yeah. I didn't know what I didn't know back then, I suppose. I just went around doing what I what I wanted to do. I did have times at, plans at the time to move to Melbourne and start an environmental consultancy. My dad had just won a UN Sustainability Award for a greywater recycling project down in Melbourne. And then I sort of realized that that maybe that wasn't the best idea with with you know no experience or education to, to go and have people take me seriously at that level. But yeah, the bank manager i was, I actually still he was still my bank manager. He just retired, and he gave me my first loan back then when I was seventeen. So,
1: and did you have to have any
2: additional steps to get the loan? Were your parents guarantor? No, no. Right, they they were willing to step in if needed, but it it all worked out. The, the value of the property was increasing at such a rate that the, even the difference between exchange and settlement had already doubled in value and, and quadrupled in value. Yeah, very short time after that. And did you have an income at that time? Were you working part-time? I moved out of home when I was 15 and was on youth allowance and that counted as income as well and, rent, and I got rent assistance because I was financially independent from my parents at that stage and then I had a part-time job that, that I was able to save a bit of money from as well. And so that was yeah my own income. Moving out of home at fifteen. Mm, yeah, I've, I've always been very independent. I tried to move out of home when I was three into the into a yurt in the backyard. But um, <laughs> what did your parents think of that? They were they were standing outside in the dark waiting for me to come back in, but I was fast asleep. And
1: <laughs> oh, it's just amazing. And so, why property? Why property? Other shares or anything else?
2: I think it's it's great to have that kind of stable something that you can you can impact you can you know renovate renovate and increase the value it's not external yeah I it was just something that my parents were sort of getting involved in as well at the time so it's more in your control so your parents were still involved even though
1: you were living out by yourself at age 15 yeah yeah we we live next door to
2: each other so I was I was next door (laughs) (laughs) so not too far away no I could (laughs) still go back for dinner when I needed to
1: now, we were talking before about your best friend. So your best friend liked property as well. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So we um, we started a little business out of high school called iDream, which was Ailea and Danielle's real estate analysis, Make It Happen. Oh, what's the <laughs> name? And um, and we used to do investment property analysis based on a software program that that inputted people's financial data and, and looked at how investment properties would impact their tax situation. Do you still run iDream? No, no. It lasted you know, a year or so. And um, and then I bought my next business, 9 to 5 Interiors, which was then called Camper Contract Furniture. So let's talk about your first business
1: now. So at this stage, you're what, age 19? Yeah, yep, 19. So you didn't go to university, straight from high school, financially independent already.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to learn about business. I, I always knew that I wanted to use business as a tool to address climate change. And I'd been reading a whole lot of books like Natural Capitalism, Cradle to Cradle, A Business Guide to Sustainability. And so that was what what my ultimate goal is. But I thought I would better learn about business first. So then I was looking at businesses to buy. And this one came up, which was a dealer for Steelcase. And they were the largest commercial furniture manufacturer in the world and founding members of the Green Building Council of America and also had the first ever cradle to cradle product certified as the think chair. And so being able to be involved in a business like that was yeah everything I wanted, really.
1: So you're a 19-year-old who's done extensive research about sustainability.
2: Yep, yep. I wasn't reading, you know, teen magazines. I was reading business books and financial planning money magazines on the beach. (laughs) Love a good money magazine. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Was it scary buying your first company at age 19?
2: Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, once again, possibly stupid because I didn't even know that the commercial furniture market existed when I bought the business. But luckily the old owner that I bought it off stayed on to train me. So he stayed for three months and and sort of you know, got me up to speed. And the existing staff that I had, some of which were, you know, over twice my age, showed me what to do and helped me learn the ropes. So that was really great.
1: Were they accepting of you as a 19-year-old female owner?
2: Yeah, I I um I got a lot of questions from clients and things I'm like, do you mind if I ask how old you are? <laughs> and I was <laughs> And then I won a Telstra Award the next year when I was just turned 21, and so that was widely available to, to figure out how old I was. And so, what was the experience like? Like, was it a a good financial
1: decision that you made, or did you have to do some work to turn things around?
2: Yeah, it was it was fantastic. It was obviously a lot of hard work. There was ups and downs, and and you know times where we weren't making money, but then we knew there was the prospect of making money. So you know, the ultimate plan was to set it up to be able to run by itself and step back. And that took a lot longer than, than I had originally planned. And it was spurred on then by the birth of my twins. So I had to have a deadline that I needed to get it running by itself. So that definitely made things a bit easier then. And and then got all the systems and processes in place to be able to have it yeah run well under management. Did you manage to achieve all that before the twins came? Kind of. I was I was interviewing new staff from hospital, but um, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> do you still have that company? Yes, yes. I've got a wonderful co-owner co now, Rodney, and he runs it. Yeah, I only have to put in a few hours a week. Only a few hours a week. This is like the four-hour dream, right? Yeah, yeah. Read that book too. That's, that's a good one.
1: Fabulous. Well, I do want to ask you about your new businesses, but since you mentioned your twins, how old are your twins now? Uh, they're 10. And so what was it like as a mum of two 10-year-olds? So they're both girls, I believe. Yeah, identical girls. Identical girls. Suddenly that must have been big changes to your life, big changes to your frugal investing business journey.
2: Yeah, yeah. There was, I was quite sick at the time I got bacteremia and was in hospital, in and out of hospital for six months. So that was a tough period. So yeah, twins and luckily my husband was there to be very supportive. Yeah, everything kind of just had to get put on hold for a while. But then I think when they were two or three, I joined my first board, became a non-executive director, which was exciting. She says calmly.
1: (laughs) You've just done so many amazing things, Leah. It's just amazing to listen to you. But I just want to talk a little bit about your family life for a little bit. What kind of money values do you instill in your children? Do you tell them to go to university and invest in their future? Or
2: how do you talk about money? What are the sorts of values? I suppose just starting with what makes them happy and knowing that money is a tool and that they don't need to work for money that they can they can get that in a lot of different ways doing what they what makes them happy is probably the most important thing. Yeah, I think it was when I had seven jobs at one point with the boards and other businesses and and I was sort of going to meetings and and you know had to be away from them at times and and there was one time when they were about 6 where they my husband said he needed to go to a meeting and they're like, oh, I thought only women went to meetings. <laughs> so I was, oh, I was a cute. bit proud of that, that they yeah, they instilled those sort of, that I'm doing what I'm passionate about. I'm not doing it for the money. So yeah. And is your husband involved in your businesses or he has completely separate things? No, he's in government. So it's nice to have a, a, a diverse, he's sort of at the moment acting general manager of climate change policy in Australia, which is a big job.
1: Wow, big climate change, <laughs>
2: sustainability family there. Yeah, yeah. That's fabulous.
1: And do you teach your girls to save and invest?
2: Yeah, so we we have, you know, pocket money for their regular chores, but then they can also earn money through, you know, hanging out the washing and folding washing and some other bits and pieces. And so they they do that out of their own choice if they choose to make that money or not. And um, and then we definitely try and instill that they don't have to spend it; that they can. We've got bank accounts for them, and they save that and then look for experiences, even instead of things that they want to purchase. And do they take
1: to that message?
2: Yeah. Yep. They, they save up for you know horse riding and bits and pieces. But so you don't just splurge for horse riding. Sometimes, but it's yeah, it's a bit of a bit of compromise. Given we contribute and they contribute. So you sort of co contribute. Yeah. And do it that way. Now, I must say that
1: I was quite impressed that the first time we spoke, you said that your daughters are taking up coding.
2: Yeah, they've, they've both done a lot of coding and one of them's then run with it even after the code camp courses that they did in the holidays. And she's done a, a whole online adults course that she's working through and and yeah, soon we'll get her coming in to evaluate and working here. So you'll, you will be employing your 10-year-old daughter. Yeah. Slave labour. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm wondering how I deal with that <laughs> legally, but I'm um, sure I can work something <laughs> out. Bribery.
1: Well, actually, I used to work for my mum when I was about that age too, and I think it was really great. I loved having my own money, but it is difficult to navigate too in terms of the mm. legalities of having someone on the payroll.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she's yeah, more advanced than some of the interns we've, we've had in, so it's, it's amazing what she can do already. Oh, she obviously must love it. Yeah. Yeah, well that's fabulous.
1: And so let's talk about your new business
2: now, evaluate. So what does it do? It automates carbon accounting. So our our goal is to transform organizations for a zero carbon future, and we want to make it easy. We believe that measurement is the first step to managing anything, so managing climate change is is crucially important, and we want to sort of build trust between carbon data that gets put out there there's a lot of greenwashing and people inflating their carbon claims. And environmental credentials and so if we can make the accounting of it standardized and easy then everyone can participate which then affects the whole supply chain of being able to show if you've got proper low carbon products and services that that then consumers can choose Uh, that makes it all sound so
1: easy but why hasn't there been standard accounting on carbon counting to date
2: there's been a lot of development. There was about five accounting standards, carbon accounting standards and frameworks up until last year. And then in June last year, a lot of them merged together and formed the Value Reporting Foundation. And then in October last year, they all formed with with another couple of bodies to form the International Sustainability Standards Board, which now sits under IFRS, which is the International Financial Reporting Standards Board. So it's now as standard as carbon accounting. It's it's put in that same parcel and, and the process is happening really rapidly to make carbon accounting standardised, which, yeah, it's been a long journey, but it's just sped up rapidly in the last couple of years. Well,
1: you're obviously very much across that process. Are you part of the process as well?
2: Yeah, I, I, um, I sit on the Australian Institute of Company Directors National Reporting Committee and the Business Leaders Reporting Forum. And so we have close involvement with the International Sustainability Standards Board and also the Australian Accounting Standards Board and ASIC to look at business reporting and the requirements there and how to improve them and standardise them. Why is it important to put a dollar cost on carbon and actually on climate change
1: for, for that uh, reason as
2: well? I think that and unless you value something, then you're not going to pay attention to it. So even if you don't offset your emissions and purchase carbon credits, having, having that internal values that you can then apply lets you make those decisions with that in mind. So the ACT government's a great example, which they've set an internal price on carbon, which they call a social cost on carbon, $50 a tonne. And then they use that money to then reinvest in projects that help them reduce their emissions. So it's not necessarily buying offsets, though their goal is to get to net zero or absolute zero. But then yeah, having that value is the only way you can really incorporate that into your decision making.
1: So what about for small businesses who want to do the right thing? Is this a really expensive thing getting a carbon accounting? Like how can people be responsible?
2: Yeah, it used to be. So back in two thousand and five when my furniture business got our first carbon accounting footprint, we we spent thousands in consultants and months of data collection and pulling out invoices and putting them in Excel spreadsheets and it was a very painful process and then you get a report back and then you've you know used up all your energy getting the the accounts, and then you you don't focus <laughs> on the reductions that you could be achieving, and that's still happening today with carbon consultants spending six months and charging twenty thousand dollars for a small business, which is not not affordable. Yeah. Um, so exactly. we we make it you know a hundred dollars a month, and we can get you carbon neutral in a day.
1: So a hundred dollars a month, and you can get carbon neutral in a day. Yeah. A day. So,
2: but then obviously we our focus is on the reductions after that so we want to have the carbon accounting as the standard then allowing you the time to be able to then focus on the reductions and map your progress over time and be able to demonstrate that to stakeholders and your customers so your
1: service does that result in cost cutting as well or is it
2: more expensive yeah definitely so it's cutting carbon is cutting costs really if you can save energy and save save you know, number of square metres of office space or anything like that, then you're saving costs in every step of the way. Wow, that seems quite amazing that you can do
1: that. And it makes sense really too, because if mm. you're being efficient, you're not wasting.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and also the benefits in terms of reputation and, and consumers choice. Companies have increased profit by 13% by looking holistically at their environmental footprint and reducing where possible. Mm, fantastic.
1: And a consumer calling for this, even though that might not be government mandated, are consumers calling for this sort of information?
2: Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, all, all levels of the supply chain, even even someone like you know a big company like Woolworths are looking at every element in their supply chain and getting their suppliers to to report to them so that then they can then help consumers be able to compare which is the least carbon intensive bottle of um, tomato paste on the shelf kind of thing.
1: Well, you know, this is an important consideration too because a lot of products are imported from overseas and mm. often they are cheaper by virtue of the exchange rate but they're not cheaper in terms of carbon.
2: Yeah, and then when you start to yeah put that in for the local food options then it really plays out and has a big impact.
1: So I have to ask now, do you have a Frugalista tip? And I have a feeling you have more than one.
2: <laughs> yeah, but my biggest, my biggest tip is buy once and buy well, like being really conscious as a consumer because you have power, money is power and your consumer choices are really important. So I think that applies to buying good quality, buying environmentally responsible products and and choosing whether you want to buy it in the first place. Do you do a lot of research before you make your own purchases? I do way too much research and sometimes <laughs> and sometimes that can be really debilitating. Like if I want to go on a holiday or buy some clothes and stuff that I have to look at every option first and and then choose which um so I'm sort of a recovering perfectionist in that regard and I need to get better at just trying to make a reasonable decision. But this is a quite quite a problem like I know we've had COVID so not many people have
1: been on airplanes but it's starting to happen like how do you reconcile the fact that you want to take your family on a holiday for instance with with climate change?
2: Yeah it's a tough one and and I think that everyone has to make their own choices of what they're sort of willing to accept. And I do believe in offsetting. Like I think that if you are paying the extra to reduce your emissions, then that is a ton of carbon reduced somewhere else. So we definitely offset all our flights. And then it's just a matter of you know reducing them. And a lot of our holidays are hiking and running and camping and those kind of things. So it's it's low carbon in other areas, but sometimes we still do have to fly. It sounds very wholesome.
1: <laughs> we try. Do you do a lot of those activities in the Canberra area where we are recording from?
2: Yeah, yep. I'm, um, I run with Canberra runners and hill seekers and um, a few other groups around town and running a marathon on the weekend. And
1: You're running a yeah. marathon this weekend.
2: Yeah, and an ultra marathon in the Blue Mountains next month. Wow, wow. So um,
1: how many boards you're on and your companies and you're running an, an ultra marathon next month and a marathon this weekend. F- fantastic.
2: Yeah, it's, it's my um, present to myself is to have that sort of time in nature on my own or with a small group and being out there giving time for myself.
1: Wow, it's, it sounds like you're really doing that very well. Do my best.
2: <laughs> and um, any other tips? I suppose just being a minimalist and and I, I sort of count myself as an anti-consumerist, so not buying because you think you need it, so just trying to keep live simply and... And those kind of things, I think, is really important. And in a practical sense, collect frequent flyer points because <laughs> they're great—not um, from flying, but from spending money. Um, so, how do you collect your frequent flyer points? Just on on credit cards and looking out for you know reward bonuses and things like that. That with purchases, I changed you know health insurance this year and got eighty thousand frequent flyer points from that. And just keep keep looking for opportunities to to collect them and get new credit cards that give you. You know, another eighty thousand frequent fly points or one hundred and twenty or so.
1: I'm assuming you're you're the sort of person who pays off your credit card in full.
2: Yes, yes, definitely paid it off every month, but then collect all the points along the way.
1: And do you find that your uh, spending blows out with use of credit cards, or
2: it's no, no, not at all. I'm I'm very conscious of what I spend and stick to the budget and know where all my money is going and and really try and be conscious about if I want to spend up to you know my budget limit and and where I where I set those limits so I don't I don't spend beyond that and how many points do you collect on frequent flyer oh well, hundreds of thousands <laughs> <laughs> but it's only 140,000 Qantas frequent flyer points for a around the world ticket and um, that's the best use of value for for spending them so that's yeah it's 40 points per dollar versus 250 points per
1: dollar in the value, so your sharp mathematical mind that develops software products and so forth has been used for analyzing frequent flyer points.
2: Definitely, definitely, and it takes a little bit of navigating to be able to get the right flights on the days that you want, and you have to be very well organized, like a year out, so that you get the flights in peak periods. But yeah, it pays off. That's for sure.
1: Mm, it most certainly does. Well, where can people reach you and find more about your companies, especially Evaluate?
2: Yeah, you can find me at LinkedIn, at ilea Buffier. At LinkedIn or something like that <laughs> and um, and evaluate.net which is E-V-A-L-U-E and the number 8.net. Wonderful.
1: Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group. Hang out and join the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Serena. What if we
0: You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley.